Welcome back. Vanessa has been um, doing the marriage thing. Gossip on which is uh, locked content for paying subscribers. Uh, If you care about the prurience of such matters, go ahead and find it when I post it. But today we have a very important guest, David French, returning guest to the podcast senior editor of The Dispatch and author of Divided We Fall. And maybe most importantly, pickleball champion. Oh, yeah, you <laughs> spoiled the ending, yes. Um, if you want to recap on David's history as a conservative commentator, uh, his religious background, his relationship with the left and his own ideology or his own political tribe, and maybe his relationship with the whole question of tribalism, political tribalism at large, go listen to our previous podcast. I think we called it something like Time to Talk About Secession. But the reason I wanted to have him on for this episode, for the 4th of July, and with Vanessa present in the room, is to discuss an article of his from last year that really touched me. If his book looks into the systemic social tensions and failures that increase sectarianism in the U.S. That article talked about that piece that was missing or that is needed to hold us together, and that's friendships. And given all the political shit shows that have been permeating the news, oh, you know, and by news I also mean reality, I thought it might be valuable to bring somebody like him with whom I might disagree with politically on so many issues, but who shares a fundamental belief in the importance of friendship, qua friendship, but also friendship across the political divide. And this is a topic that you and I have talked about a lot over the years, I'd say. I think we both kind of sense there's this like diminishing value of friendship in society. Uh, I think especially with us being in our mid thirties and you see people uh, trotting off to have progeny. Uh, there seems to be like, well, the family is my priority and will always be. Uh, and often it seems to be presented that it has to come at the expense of friendship. And I think you and I have talked a lot about the importance of friendship the value that friendship can bring to your life if you decide to cultivate it. And with David, we got into the influence of our social habits and technology and how they are pulling us further apart and are, we are losing the skills of even forming friendships. And of course, this is only made worse by the hypertense angry militant politics or political environment that we live in today where people sort according to the tribe but also then in their loneliness and despair turn to more radical politics expecting their social their abstract social activism to fill in the hole that only friendships can 
And at the end, we try to dip a little bit into the issues that actually divide us a little bit. You know, light matter like abortion and guns. And see if we can delve into them without being completely derailed. And I think talking about things like abortion is there's no better way to test the boundaries of civil discourse than touching on these topics. So we, we this issue is going to unpack a lot of feelings, emotions and thoughts. Uh, and we'll try to talk about them in ways that give space to those thoughts and feelings, but also hopefully don't descend into anarchy and uh, violence. <laughs> yeah, that's what uh, riots are for. Um, and with that. David French. I hope this this camera angle isn't too Lenny Riffenstahl scary for you. No, no. Uh-uh. Uh, to quote your, your partner, let's dive right in. David, thank you for joining us. Hello. Yeah, thanks for having me. Just took a break from your busy schedule to come in and talk about a, a year-old article of yours that has <laughs> uh, been, I, I, I thought... The first time I read it was incredible. We'll put it in the show notes, obviously. But it's uh, I remember reading it last summer when I was in Israel. And you made a case about the scarcity or in growing scarcity of friendship in, in the American public sphere. So do you want to give us a quick recap of that argument before we get into it? Yeah, so uh, it was spurred, the piece was spurred by uh, a study that came out, American, part of the American Perspectives, American Perspectives Survey, uh, and it showed that there is a pronounced decline in friendship in the United States. So if you have the difference between men, and, and both men and women have had a decline in friendship, but uh, men in particular. So if you go all the way back to 1990, all the way back is not that long. But if you go back to 1990, about 40% of men registered having 10 or more close friends. So a very robust life, uh, friendship life. And only 3% said they had no close friends at all. By 2021, those numbers had changed dramatically. Uh, five times as many, 15% of men said they had no close friends um, if you're talking about between no friends to just, you know, two friends or so, between none and two is more than a third or around a third of all men. And then the number of men who recorded having 10 or more friends went from 40% to 15%. So just a real seismic change in friendship in the U.S. And with women, all of those numbers were, uh, there was a decline in the number of friendships for women too, but not as dramatic. And and so the point that I tried to make is that this friendlessness is creating kind of a hole in people's lives. It, it's that, you know, we're people who are made for relationship. We need friendships. And that what's ending up happening, and the case that I made, and I was talking also about a piece that Damon Linker wrote, was that we're filling the hole left by these rich, deep friendships with um, factional friendships, friendships that are rooted in the relationship you get when you become a Trump supporter and you're a front row Joe, so to speak. Um, when you know you form an online community centered around a video game or um, 
you know, any given political cause. And these friendships are not as rich and deep because they're ultimately conditional. You know, the, if you could be a front row Joe with the Trump, you know, following, and that's a term that front row Trump rally supporters use to describe themselves. You could be a front row Joe, but if you depart from Trump, you're going to lose that whole f- set of friends. Um, if you, you know, let's say you've formed a friendship around, you know, political cause, and if you start to have second thoughts, you're going to lose that friendship. And so my point they're, they're is conditional that, and therefore radicalize your attachment to whatever cause creates that community. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So this is, you know, uh, the legal definition of a conspiracy is a combination of two or more persons. So in other words, a conspiracy is a combination of people. And that's one of the reasons why conspiracies are so powerful right now is that they are creating, it's not just a set of abstract beliefs that you can fact check a person out of. It's a community that becomes incredibly valued uh, valued in a person's life. I think last time we had you on the show, David, we talked about your book, your great book, mm-hmm. which kind of spins out a scenario of if the if the U.S. kind of fell apart and divided. Right. I just uh, wanted to point out that it is literally the foundation of this conversation because your book is holding the, the laptop that you are seeing us through. Yes. Quite literally, okay. it's undergirding this discussion. I'm the glad bedrock. it's still so useful. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, but I think in that conversation, we kept it a little bit more on kind of the abstract levels, a little bit more on the political sphere. Uh, and I think this question of friendship gets to more of the interpersonal level and the ways that the personal and the political are mirroring each other, I suppose. So to what extent do you feel like this, you know, the, the lack of friends and friendship is one of the kind of root causes? No, I. so I think... Um, one of the things you're seeing in this right now in America is a lot of people are putting politics absolutely front and center in their lives. It is a source of meaning and purpose. Okay. And my thesis is that, you know, if you, in, in, in previous iterations of American culture, you, fewer people were locating meaning and purpose in politics, um, because you're getting meaning and purpose out of, your civic associations, out of your relationships. the And politics was not so front and center to you that you're getting literally meaning and purpose out of it. And and this isn't, a, you know, this sort of observation about the breakdown in civic associations is not remotely original or new. I think one of the most important books of the last quarter century is Bowling Alone by Robert Putnam. And, you know, we're seeing, uh, Tim Carney wrote a book called Alienated America that was, about the ways in which people are divorcing themselves from civic associations and these kind of community relationships. But again, you know, you we're not people who were created to sort of bounce around life and kind of this atomized existence. So we're going to look for that transcendent kind of meaning and purpose. And the interesting thing is when you actually look at who's deeply involved in politics, um, there's an inter- there's some interesting demographic similarities on the right and on the left. Um, they tend to be people who are much more online. They tend to be people who are disproportionately white, disproportionately well educated, and disproportionately well off. And so, and this male, is, um, men and women. I don't know that it's necessarily male when it comes to, for example, the, uh, for example, that I'm talking about the commonalities between the progressive activists and the traditional conservatives. Um, so you're going to have a lot of women who are progressive activists and maybe more men who are traditional conservatives. 
And so, you know, you're talking about a very similar demographic of people who's getting very, very, very obsessed with politics. This is this is politics as a religion. This is politics as community. This is politics as meaning. It's almost past a mere metaphor calling this politics as religion, right? At this point, the the the, the attachment is d- uh, uh, gaining the sort of occultish um, value that comes when the tribes, you know, congregates around the, the the bonfire and in the you know the original circumstances that created the or tapped into the human urge for both community and a sense of the numinous. Mm-hmm. And all this is just being transplanted to power politics. And it's not even yeah. politics associated with particular policies because policies were never interesting. But it is associated with whatever um, paragon you have fighting for your tribe, for your sect. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's And, you know, so what ends up happening is you're, ki- you're not only getting purpose from politics, you're getting purpose from the tribal affiliation, the tribal, you know, so there's this really great piece in the Wall Street Journal uh, from earlier this week um, by um, Verlin Lewis and um, Hiram Lewis about sort of the, how the, that we're not so much ideologically polarized, but it's tribal hostility. In other words, it's this community solidarity of me and mine versus you and yours and again, this is very much rooted in that relational component here. It's very much rooted in that in that um, sense of fellowship and community and communal purpose. And, and in that circumstance, the ideology becomes secondary. In fact, we've seen a lot of ideological change. Um, uh, you know, I'm much more conversant on the right than, you know, all of the various permutations of ideology on the left. But it's interesting to me that the right has become more tribal as it's become in some ways less ideological. It it really is me and mine versus you and yours. I am still very curious about the study that you wrote about. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if maybe it, it might be nice to give us a little bit of a sense of for you in your life, what has friendship meant to you and how have you seen it either come to the fore or or recede to the background in your in in your life and i wonder if that will be an interesting way to start diving yeah. into it on a on a broader scale yeah so i have always been blessed with close friendships a number of close friendships so and and always it's been sort of a part of the ethos of our friendship to really prioritize maintaining the friendship including when we're in that young married phase and young parents where it's so incredibly difficult to sort of maintain that, um, those relationships as everyone gets busy and they've got kids and they've got work. So we very intentionally maintain these friendships and they're absolutely key and indispensable for me. I mean, I'm somebody who is, um, you know, in the middle of sort of these online political wars, but I have, that's not the source of like my sense of meaning and purpose. Um, although I'm very thankful for my career and I'm thankful to have whatever public voice that I have, you know, the, the, what really makes my life, you know, what really gives me joy in life are my, are the relationships, family and friends. And, but at the same time that I was part of a friend group, we were really prioritizing maintaining these friendships. 
I saw a lot of my peers, a lot of guys just lose their friends, not because they were bad friends or they had conflicts or anything like that. It's just that life got busy and people drifted apart. And to the point now where it is very common to interact with guys my age, you know, 50, 53, I'm 53, and they just don't have friends. They just don't have friendships. And again, it's because life happened. It's not because of any breach. Life happened. And you're just constantly running up against loneliness in, in the male world. I, I, so uh, before we, I mean, there are two paths. I'm interested in the question about the male world specifically and, and what you recognize there's what's unique there. But I want to even tease apart the idea that life gets in the way. Because you're saying mm -hmm. you prioritized maintaining this friendship. And I think this goes yeah. into the um, what I texted you a year ago after reading your article. I, I don't know if it's exactly criticism or just pointing out what me as a foreigner to this country um, constantly feel is that the idea that friendship is something that requires maintenance and work and that this is something that should be prioritized seems foreign <laughs> to this country, or at least not common. Whereas growing up in Tel Aviv or Jerusalem, it's taken so much for granted that everything in your environment supports it mm -hmm. by supplying you with what I consider friendship um, infrastructure, spaces that encourage you, invite you, call on you to spend time with people. Like I could write an entire essay about benches. There are benches literally everywhere, in the street, in the park, outside office buildings, inside office buildings. You are encouraged to stay longer at your, whether it's the, the coffee shop or the bar, without being shoveled out after, uh, after finishing your drink. The, the music is low because you're encouraged to deal with the intrasocial awkwardness of the conversation and find your way into interpersonal meaning rather than escape into the noise and nodding and just sip some beer, grunt, and find somebody to pick up. <laughs> and those are subtle differences that really struck me moving here because I suddenly realized that not only do I find it difficult to find a place to just be with people as people, I, I had the sense that everybody around me, maybe it's especially um, bitter in New York, the, the people I meet here have assimilated that philosophy. And, you know, when you're scheduling uh, a coffee with somebody, you're actually scheduling the exact 20 minutes from ordering the coffee and yeah. paying the bill, and that's it. There's no implicit possibility of extension. And I think it's those differences that give you the signal that the friendship itself isn't the point. It's about efficiency. It's about going from your home to your work to your next detail of life. But the friendship is just, it's just landscaping. Am I, am I pointing something real? Is this, is this a real problem in, in American culture, this, this absence of friendship infrastructure? Friendship friction. Friendship yeah. friction. And, uh, and yeah, or if not, what it, why is this country so damn lonely? <laughs> so, no, I think you're hitting on something, but I think that the culture that says the music is low, that the lunch is long or coffee is long is uh, something that follows, there's something prior to that, um, right? So if I 
if I meet somebody new and I say, hey, let's have coffee at nine and I start to have a conversation and like it's 9.30, it's 9.40, it's 9.50 and it's no sign that it's ending, the person that I'm interacting with is likely to think I'm rude. That don't you know how busy I am? Don't you know that I've carved out this time? And so there's something before that that is saying, my time is incredibly precious. By carving out 30 minutes, I'm carving out a lot. Um, and especially during the day, now towards the end and the evening, but the evening, if you're going to be going out in the evening with somebody, there's going to be, there, often there's going to be a prior relationship. You know, there's already the relationship before you're going out in the evening. And the other thing that I think, though, what I have seen is especially in the American professional class is because people are so mobile, you'll come together for a time, college, law school, and then you often scatter to the winds. And so once you scatter, then all of these friendships that you have, if you're going to maintain them to be very close, you have to be super intentional. You have to say, we're getting together two times a year or, you know, in very almost... Uh, and and very, you know, almost intolerant of those who are going to skip out, right? So if you're going to be in this friend, friend group, we're getting together. Um, otherwise, you're kind of at sea again, and you have to recreate a friend group and find one. And then if you move again, you scatter. And I think there's just a lot of mobility, especially in the professional class, that makes it very difficult to maintain these kind of lifetime close, close friendships that you get if you were born and grew up and work in the same town. But I actually think that there's something more profound that you're skipping. Um, first of all, I, I got to say that every time I hear somebody say at sea, I think Antonin Scalia, as far as I'm concerned, it's his phrase. <laughs> so the feeling that um, your time is precious isn't unique to the professional class in New York City, it, Tel Avivians mm -hmm. have that as well. But Tel, but Tel Avivians are used to think of those gaps of quietude with friends as time well spent. If I mm -hmm. if I if I had like a, 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 an outing and I spent it just sitting in a park with a friend, not even necessarily talking or, or or you know making a deal or even reaching some emotional catharsis, but we just spent it together, that imbues you with meaning in itself. That, so even for the, the time-frenzied professionals, that was great a great 30 minutes. Um, and I think that's what's missing. And it's connecting, in my mind, it connects into the um, consistent desire in our current culture, at least what, from what I'm recognizing in the U.S., to fill in every gap of awkwardness or of silence or of moments that you don't... You, let forget about being with others. You can't be with yourself because you can't be alone in your room in your own boredom. You need to smother it with with a podcast or um, mm -hmm. thank God or with yeah uh, 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 other content. And I I was asking Vanessa when we were as we were preparing for this interview yesterday. Like I was wondering if if the current technology that is so obsessed with eliminating those uh, awkward silences from our lives if that technology were originally created in the Tel Aviv tech scene, as opposed to Silicon Valley, I think the Tel Aviv calls it um, the Silicon Wadi, uh, which is yeah. very witty. <laughs> and, uh, but but if, if the technology originally emerged from there, I wonder if it would have been less 
focused on filling boredom and rather like maybe a little more social minded might be completely might be completely wrong about this but i wonder if they if the initial assumption was how do we monetize how do we monetize sociability as opposed to how do we in, enhance alienation <laughs> well, they would have said get attention, not enhance right, alienation. Right, 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 right. Yes. The yeah. euphemism is as creepy as the truth. Uh, yeah, that's, that's you know, it's a, it's a good question because a lot of the technology is an engine of distraction Yeah, right now. It's, it, it's, a, it's just constantly there and, and, and even in interpersonal relationships. I mean, the, the, the reality of the distracting capa- capability of technology is just all always there. Um, you know, you know, there's something going back to the time issue. There's a bit of a chicken or egg issue. Cause if I'm with close friends, I'm going to make time. Like I don't do a 30 minute coffee with a close friend. Like we're, when we're getting together, we're getting together. Right. But that, how, what about the friendship formation? So there's there's sort of two things. There's yeah. the friendship formation, and then there's the friendship maintenance. Mm-hmm. And and this, I think, actually does get to some of the gender differences that we see. In my experience, and I'd be curious about y'all, guys, as a, you know, and whenever we say guys or, you know, talk about men or women, we're talking generalities. They're not going to be, there's going to be exceptions to rules, you know, but... In my experience, men tend to form relationships out of common experience and are reluctant to dive into and are resistant to sort of engineered intimacy. So, you know, my experience is in churches, and a lot of churches recognize that there's a big problem with lack of male friendship and fellowship. And so what they try to do is they'll say, well, now we have a men's ministry and we're going to get together and we're all going to get to know each other. And a lot of guys just don't like that. Like, I know I don't like it. I don't, I call it forced intimacy. I'm just not, you know, don't make me talk to people about stuff. You need a mediating activity through which you can generate conversation. (laughs) Exactly. The conversation flows or doesn't, but the activity is the thing that creates the bond, you know? And it's, you know, it, and this is something that's the subject of lots of jokes. You know, you go to a baseball game with a friend and your wife will say, well, how's his family? And you'll say, I don't know. We didn't talk about that. Well, what'd you talk about? The baseball game. <laughs> so, so there's a lot of, there are differences here where I think that men tend to form relationships out of shared experiences. And one of the interesting aspects of modern American life is that there's been a steady decline for a lot of reasons, many of them quite good, in exclusively male spaces. And so um, that means that there's less of this sort of time where men are in each other's presence, sort of going through a common experience and forming those kinds of relationships. I guess, okay. I guess there's like a couple different questions about that because why can't men and women have friendships within these shared common experiences in these ex- formally exclusively male spaces like that doesn't seem to be a requisite for diminishing friendships i'd want to under unpack why you think that might be um and what yeah no and i'll just add to this challenge again what we talked about yesterday is maybe maybe in that regard israel being the the, the birth child of 
a mix of Enlightenment colonialism and uh, and Soviet influence and militaristic culture has made it to some extent more egalitarian in its DNA. And I never had that experience that male exclusive cultures were a prerequisite for the development of bonds. And nor do I even consider male dominated groups to be that common. I think the the groups that, that you see of friendships evolving in Israel are often, at least post, you know, middle school, generally mixed in gender and from different contexts of acquaintanceship. And maybe it's the leveling effect of a military. Maybe it's the, like I said, the history of kibbutz and, and mm-hmm. um, shared national identity. I don't know what it is, but hearing you talk about the, um, the negative um, externalities of losing um, male exclusive spaces in that sense feels like an anthropological study of a foreign and distant land. <laughs> Not something that even remotely rings familiar. So let me ask you this. In your mixed gender relationships, did people pair off? So that's a great question. Mm-hmm. And definitely. Um, in, in my immediate friends group, there were at least two couples that broke off. But it didn't break the bond of the group. Mm-hmm. At certain points during, the, um, during certain stages of relationships, the couple would vanish. But... Yeah, <laughs> but there was a pull back because it is like I said, it's kind of taken for granted that you need more than that. That the the family unit is insufficient to satisfy your tragic human condition. So you also need some friends. You need those different perspectives to to enrich your life. I think that actually pushes the question back to you. Vanessa brought this up like five minutes before the uh, the talk, and we'd love to hear your thought. Because you mentioned yourself the challenge you have in, or the thought you put into finding the balance for friendship in stages in life where you'd normally break off into family or, or the insularity of coupledom. Um, how do you, do you think that there is something in American culture that actually puts family in contest with friendship? And if so, is, is that, could that be one of those core issues of why alienation is so strong? Because the, the idea that you need to pair off and, and do your own thing now and get a house and install a big, bright fence? Oh, I think there's something about family uh, and child raising in the U.S. that definitely atomizes families because unless you are in the same school district and your kids are in the same age and they're entering into the same activities the the forces pulling you away on a time basis are overwhelming so if you have you know just to take so i have three kids oldest kid um played volleyball she played travel volleyball she played high school volleyball uh, middle kid played basketball and football okay youngest kid plays volleyball and soccer when pray tell do i have time to really dive in without truly, earnestly, seriously prioritizing these relationships. And and I think this is something, if you talk to parents um, in my peer group, the contrast between when we were growing up, where every minute of every day wasn't so stinking scheduled. You had time 
And then now, you know, if you're, if, if you just want to be like a mediocre high school basketball player, you know, or just be suit up for the varsity football team, you are, I mean, the amount of time is staggering that you're going to be. And then what ends up happening is you form these temporary friendships. So all of a sudden you have 10, 10 sets of parents who are spending the whole summer together because of travel volleyball. Season's over, boom, you all go to your different schools, and then you're with the 10 sets of parents during school volleyball. And then, and it just is this unbelievable sort of pulling and pulling and pulling at your time, which is why, you know, for us and our friendships, we had to be just downright intolerant about those who would beg off for other, you know, no, we're getting together, sorry. And we're only getting together when we can all get together. And if one or two people are stopping us from getting together, we're going to absolutely dogpile them <laughs> until they tell their spouse, look, I got to go, I got to go. So, well, actually, so I, yeah. I, I, I got I to gotta ask you, um, this, this is not part of the program, but um, it's uh, a thought that I had interviewing Yasha Monk, and I, uh, so I apologize for the detour a little bit, but he, 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 I don't know if you read his new book, um, yeah. Diverse Democracies, The Great Experiment. And reading it, 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 it occurred to me because he was making an argument in favor, or, or sorry, he was arguing that one of the duties of a liberal democracy is to protect the individual from the tyranny of his own group. And reading that actually made me think that isn't to some extent oppression the secret sauce that maintains groups together. <laughs> yeah. And I like, it, obviously you can say that some oppression is just intolerable and, and doesn't deserve our dignity. And that's, um, that's what Yasha uh, answered. But, but ultimately it's, it's very hard to suss out because you only feel that you belong when there is some risk of being penalized for stepping out. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's not just, I mean, in my friend group, if you're stepping out, you, you're going to be worn out. Like, you're just going to be worn out. And, you know, there we, we get together every summer and every winter. And even though we all live in the same town, and we're actually all getting together tonight because uh, one of my friends has challenged me to a pickleball game. And there's going to be large amounts of money bet on the outcome of this game. <laughs> and you might want to get in now because I'm going to win. But, <laughs> um, and, you know... One uh, one guy just texted and says they can't come, and he's in the middle of just a deluge of scorn. And so, you know, that's sort of and but that's that's all um, that is all from a standpoint of tremendous amount of affection. So that scorn is, and that that pressure is like we're not a group without you. We're not us without you. But oppression. Like or, or, or say a, an oppression uh, formed by religion or by other sects is basically that concept at scale, right? The whole the whole reason Islam has apostasy law is because it wants to keep the Ummah unified. The reason that that um, <laughs> ultra orthodox um, dog down uh, people who try to leave the community and sometimes burn their houses is because of the idea that they want to be that they 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 are stronger as as a unit and they it's they see it as out of love to some extent. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, tight knit religious communities. A lot of them have 
healthy religious communities have a lot of accountability, and then unhealthy religious communities have too much accountability. Right. <laughs> and, and there's this blurry line between the two things. And, you know, I grew up in um, a quite sort of fundamentalist uh, religious, deno- you know, Christian denomination. And there was time when it was, it was just too much, you know, it was too much. But then at the same time, there's such a thing as not nearly enough. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so there's got, there has to be a certain amount of glue, but it can't be cement. And it's a kind of a, you know, it when you see it, when it's just right versus when it's too much. It's funny, Vanessa's wedding, she had a, she and her um, now husband had a whole ceremony bringing in people close from from the fathers to the mothers to the sisters to um, ceremonially wrap them in in scarves to symbolically wrap them in different values that they care about duty support caring or some or kindness and yeah. re- re- something along those lines right. yeah and the last bit was appropriately i guess assigned assigned to me and and our other flatmate is is to untie them and give them slack yeah yeah finding that balance is the definition of a healthy community but it's but it makes me wonder and i guess you'd be uh, a, a person to... I, I really want to hear your opinion on this as somebody from a fundamentalist uh, background and also who is a, not only plugged into but also deeply concerned about the current state of religion in America. Isn't the fact that um, oppression... quote-unquote, let's, let's put that word aside. I just like bombastic provocations. Social pressure. Social pressure. Um, so the social pressure in religious contexts in the U.S., seems to be putting way more emphasis, at least from my perspective, on political issues or culture war issues rather than on its role in keeping the community together. It, it, or I should maybe ask this question differently. Isn't the very fact that people have not only abandoned religion but also have lost any sense of um, spiritual connection to each other, isn't that a failure on the part of the American churches? Yes, but it wasn't so obvious. I mean, it was obvious to dissenters before, but I don't think it was so glaringly obvious until much more recently. Because I think what happened is that a lot of people, especially in sort of the evangelical spaces I run in, there was a lot of, we didn't ultimately know what was the thing that bound us together because there was so much unanimity and there was so much agreement that we didn't hit a tension point. And so, so for example, to take the Trump issue, in theory, one person saying Trump and one person saying Biden should be far less important than one person saying, you know, than the a unified agreement about Jesus, for example, right? Jesus is way up here, Trump, <laughs> Biden, way down here, Okay. But then what we found out is that when the Trump-Biden disagreement arose, that it was actually much more salient than the continued agreement about Jesus, okay? So all of a sudden, when you never know um, what, the way I put it is you you just kind of don't know who you are in any respect until you're tested. And you don't know if you're a loving person until it's hard to love. You don't know if you're a truthful person until it's hard to tell the truth. You don't know if you're a faithful person until there's real temptation. There's all of these things that you don't know about yourself until you're until they're tested. 
And a lot of people prior to 2016 in the world that I'm in would have said, I'm incredibly tolerant politically. I can't ever imagine ending a friendship over politics, especially for unified and our, you know, religious belief system. And then all of a sudden the tension, the fallout happens over politics. And they're like, you're horrible. Get out. <laughs> and, and so what, what, was ha- what happened is the underlying value hierarchy was put to the test. And what was discovered is that the political value was higher than the religious value. And that wasn't known until the test came. Uh, interesting. We're all in the church of American politics now. Yeah, exactly. Part of the problem is that the language in, I, I don't even want to call it intellectual thought, but the, the, um, the, the psychic energy, the temperament of politics is almost perfectly tuned to to dissolve friendships to to um, alienate people further because it constantly puts symbolic goals above the human connection it it, it emphasizes with with what is almost a totalitarian streak how much you cannot trust your individual friends how much you can trust a person's good faith behavior, you need to judge them based on their affiliation. And that's yeah. co- the idea is constantly being reinforced. I guess I'm thinking too, I'm wondering, because you were talking earlier about the fact that the way that men form friendships is through situational experience. And mm-hmm. there's not an emphasis, at least from the way you, you presented it on vulnerability, connection, kind of openness like that those aren't that's not the grounds upon which friendship is formed necessarily in the male world and i wonder if there is a connection here in that it, it, when you're not emphasizing connection as a bedrock of friendship and it's just are you together a lot then <laughs> then the political divides become wedges because the, yeah. the foundation was never strong to begin with well, you know, my bet, my, my two, like two of my, um, my, well, my closest circles of friends are politically diverse. So, um, but we also went through shared experiences together, um, that were incredibly formative. So everything from, we were all together in the dorm in my freshman year of college, or we went to law school together, or we served in Iraq together. So we went through formative experiences and, gained a huge amount of trust and regard for each other. And then the political differences and things like that really don't matter because the friendship wasn't formed in the political affiliation. That's not how it was formed. And all of the, you know, closeness and genuine, uh, you know, sort of the vulnerability, all of that flows from the trust gained from the experience. All of that is a natural, um, but in my experience, especially middle-aged guys can really sniff out efforts to artificially create that. You know, they, they're immediately wary of efforts to sort of artificially, to get the cart before the horse, the trust before the experience or the trust. So trust flows, or, and it's one of the reasons why I think you see so many guys struggling with friendships is the opportunity to have these shared experiences just sort of diminishes and then kind of vanishes over time unless you're really intentional about it. Um, 
and the inertia of life, you know, the object at rest remains at rest, the object in the lazy boy remains in the lazy boy, (laughs) you know, then the inertia of life starts to take over. And then you wake up one morning and you're just like, well, who are my friends? You know, if I, if I have time on a Friday night, who am I calling? Anybody? And at that point, there's also a degree of atrophy. Suddenly you are in a social situation, but you don't know what to do. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't really explain the male-female difference, though, because women are also, you know, there's a lot of pulls on time. And when you consider that m- a lot of women end up taking on most of the burden of child rearing as well, you, you could argue that there's more burden on women's time. And it's shocking that they're still at finding time to prioritize friendship. So that I feel like there is something happening that isn't quite, I, I can't quite put my finger on why we're having a gender divide, although, although it is a, it is an issue on both sides of the, of, of yeah. I mean, I mean, you suggested uh, yesterday, Vanessa, uh, is it, is it a degree of latent uh, homophobia? Is it the, is it? I I I have a theory that men can't relate to each other because they're afraid of being perceived as homosexual. Yes. (laughs) Or or I don't slightly more like the toned down version of this. Maybe you need a degree of vulnerability in order to actually develop that concept of friendship, right? Like even with your friends group, it, it, it implicitly shows your vulnerability that you are going to go out of your way to cause trouble for the friends who are not going to come today, tonight, because mm-hmm. it shows that you love them, that you want them there. And that maybe comes across as effeminate to some Americans, having that admission that we have, you know, an emotional and not just sexual need for other people, that we are not rugged individuals. I mean, it's a complicated stew, but um, the one thing that I would say is consistently when I talk about this issue, women are more incredulous that go- about the guy's approach to intimacy. And guys are almost, uh, with few exceptions, nodding along with everything that I say. So I do think in, in what I've seen, again, we're talking generalities, there are exceptions to all of this. I think uh, women are more in in many ways are more capable of being vulnerable and genuine with each other faster than men are. Now, just, is that because of this thing to do or that, you know, is this, is, is that because of sort of toxic ideas about masculinity that sort of say you should be more stoic and less emotional, or is it because there's just something sort of different about, you know, the emotional makeup of guys than than girls as a general matter because of there's just a different like chemical stew going on in their in their heads and their bodies. I you know, I don't know, I'm sure it's there's a combination of a lot of it, but what's pretty consistent to me is what I see is is uh women who are just kind of uh, mystified slash confused slash a little bit maybe scornful of the sort of the male approach to friendship that says, wait, why, why can't you just kind of be open with each other? (laughs) You know, and, and you're like, well, it just doesn't work like that. And I don't, you know, and, and it's not like I'm sitting there going, Hey, I really want to be open with you, but society and culture keeping, I'm saying, I don't want to be open with you. I don't know you. 
Um, I, I, was, I, I worry, though, if because we are seeing the same political trends um, among both men and women, as, as you pointed out, I wonder if the, the superficial ca- head count of friends um, that women win on is still not actually answering the more substantive absence of meaningful connections that something that you can really derive meaning from. Well, I think that both men and women are suffering in this area. So it's it's not a matter it's it's a matter of degree, not kind, if that makes sense. So I think there is a lot happening in modern America that is causing men and women to suffer in this area, and men are suffering somewhat more. Um, and I do think that even amongst the friendships that you do have, or you would call it a close friend, I I often wonder how close is close. You know, how close is close? Because I just see amongst peers this incredible force that is pulling people away from each other, um, whether it's the technology, whether it's schedules. Um, it's just different than it was 25 years ago. Yeah, I think another layer to this too is that I, I think people feel the lack, but they also aren't altering the behavior to compensate for the lack. And in fact, are, are, in, are enacting the behaviors that accomplish the opposite. So what I'm thinking of is, for example, um, we, at least people in my generation, hate casual social interactions, telephone mm-hmm. calls, like saying hello to somebody on the bus, and we will do everything possible to subvert, avoid those types of interactions but humans need those interactions. And in fact, once you have them, you're often you're generally more happy that you had some interaction with a human that day than you are upset. There. But for some reason, we've convinced ourselves that every social interaction is to be avoided with headphones, with heads like in our phones. We're so compelled to text to have superficial online interaction and then go home and feel meaningless and empty because it wasn't yeah. fulfilling the needs. That's why I yeah. genuinely think that there is a possibility that Silicon Wadi would have would have come up with different technologies that are more take, that are fund, founded on the idea that you want to preserve and enhance those social interactions rather than avoid them. You know, we we have the irony that I'm more able to be more in touch with more friends right now than at any point in the whole history of the human race, <laughs> and yet we suffer from an increasing and escalating amount of disconnection. And and I think you said something really interesting about the ways in which we wall ourselves off. The the interesting irony is that all of these different ways have increased the ways in which we can interact casually to the point where interaction that's more intimate, like a phone call, is seen as almost rude in some spaces. Like, it's funny, my wife and I, we're both Gen X, but we kind of have a more millennial uh, tech sensibility. And we're like, why is so-and-so calling me? Don't they know how to text? You know, but then on the other hand, that's such a flat medium compared to hearing someone talk and hearing someone talk is um, flatter is than watching someone while we talk for, and then it, the, that's flat compared to actually being in the presence of somebody. But, you know, it's interesting how the prevalence of the ability to stay in contact has put sort of a premium, the social premium is on the casual interaction where the more intimate interaction is sometimes seen as like, why, why are you doing that? Rude and scary. <laughs> yes. It's the, it's the social awkwardness problem. It's the inability to yeah. deal with it and trying to shun it as much as possible. And I find myself even 
having to create rules to try to subvert that to some extent. I have several friends that I told them, don't text me, call me. Yeah. If I can't answer, I won't answer, but call me. And I, 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 I don't know. I've just, it's, it, and I still find it when I get the phone call, sometimes I'm completely free. And it, there was a second of paralysis of what do I do now? It's like, oh yeah, you answer. You, you, you hear what the person has to say. And it's interesting. It's just an interesting realization of, of a psychology that I don't think I reflected on in real time when I was using phones more regularly than texting, pre-smartphone. Just how much emotion is conveyed when you answer somebody and you just hear the hello, there's already yeah. a lot of intensity. You're putting, you're on high alert. You're reading so many cues that are completely absent from the text. Yeah. When I was a young lawyer... I spent serious amounts of time on the phone with my friends while I was in the office, you know, four o'clock. Gosh, I just, you know, I'm bored. I, I'm going to be here till 10. Let me call my friend Paul. We're, and we'll talk half an hour. That means I got to go home at 1030. But hey, we, you know, and, and that's just much less common. It's so much less common. And it's instead that drive-by interaction and I'm get so guilty of that. I have a friend who just stubbornly calls and it annoys me so much. <laughs> I, he'll call and I have all the time in the world and I refuse to answer out of principle. And I would just immediately text him and say, why are you calling me? Are your thumbs broken? You know, so yeah. And I'm, you know, that, but we, but we're also, we've been friends for 30 plus years. So we have that kind of relationship, but. So to switch gears, because we, the, the, part of the concern that we've been having about this absence of friendship aside for just making America miserable is that it does translate into um, meaningless political fighting that could be disastrous. And I, I, I just want to br- try to briefly touch some of those horrible topics and just <laughs> for, first, firstly, I just will, um, because the whole point is to establish uh, good rapport and, and good faith. I, I just have to ask you, um, why do you hate women, David? <laughs> I, I was not aware that I did, but if you could explain no, to me how I did. I'm kidding. <laughs> Abortion is one of those flashpoints of American culture war. It's clear to see why, because the fundamental question at the heart of it is a difficult one to answer. Where does life begin? Maybe even unanswerable, really. But the climate of mad polarization has made the fundamental questions almost moot or subservient to the politics. I come from a very pro-choice tradition, but I also completely understand the perspective which you uh, promulgate splendidly and compassionately without dismissing the other side, even though this has been a cause that you've been fighting for um, for m- most of your life, I think, right? Yeah. And though I come from the opposite perspective, you make a case that's sincere and that I can at least understand. You recognize a group of people essentially, as you see it, whose rights are being deprived, whose humanity is being denied. Mm-hmm. Is this just one of those subjects that in, I, you understand why there are high tensions there? Because this really requires adjudicating between two rights that often come at each other's expense. You can understand why people would arrive at either side in completely good faith, not because they want to murder babies or because they hate women. And yet right. we are we are completely incapable of even putting that tension aside and just where can we actually find some balance that will we, we, we can agree will be 
a decent compromise for society. Why, why is that? And, and somebody who's been in that conflict for so long, I, yeah. I want to start by hearing why do you think it's so implacable? And I'd also be curious to know if it's changed or gotten worse over time. Yeah, so why is it so implacable? One reason why it's so implacable is because of the way in which the abortion issue was decided, at least for a time, and that's the Roe decision. So essentially what you're talking about is this incredibly important issue that would have been worked out through the democratic process the way it's been worked out in countries across the world, right? So, you know, France, Britain, Germany, many other countries, um, people have debated abortion and they've come to a democratically arrived at compromise. And it's not front and center in national politics. Well, what happened in 1973 in the U.S. is the court said, this is no not subject to democratic debate any longer. And just like that, the only way to actually argue in a substantive way about abortion and come to, some, from a policy standpoint, that actually could really make a difference is you had to go ahead and change the composition of the Supreme Court. <laughs> like this was, it escalated the fight over the court dramatically. It removed this from the kind of compromise uh, conversation that leads to compromise, that compromise requires a degree of goodwill, for example. It requires a degree of humility. It requires people to enter into relationship to sort of figure things out. And it took this whole issue and it removed it from that process. And when you remove it from that process, that meant that there was, you know, if you're going to take a position like, um, and I, I've written about of late, that some people in the pro-life movement, are they call themselves abolitionists, where they would prosecute the mother. They would have no exception uh, for the life or health of the mother in the abortion, you know, in an abortion ban. What's the downside to holding that view? Like, it, it's, you can, until, you know, prior to the overturning of Roe v. Wade, you can just posture yourself and say, I'm the most pro-life, you know, because there was not even a possibility of entering into a meaningful political compromise. And so, it meant that you could take the you you could take positions that were and and engage in kind of this furious online fight, but it never meant anything really, or it's hard for it to really mean something because it was removed from the democratic process. And so, it will be interesting Sorry, just to, to see make what sure happens. I understand that it's just because it was determined by a Supreme Court case that means that it's no longer able to be litigated in. Congress. Is that what you're saying? Right, right. So you, yeah, you, the Supreme Court basically said, hey, there's very little, very little regulation that you can do on abortion, period. Doesn't matter if 90% of the people in your state want it or, you know, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's not part of the democratic process the way we traditionally hash out a lot of issues. Now, America is so polarized that even if it were and is a part of the democratic process, it might be it's probably going to be, a, well, it's going to be a very brutal conversation. But I think that one thing that separated America from the rest of the Western world on this issue was the judicial determination of it. And it came all of a sudden. You know, that's another thing that this is, this wasn't even like, um, you know, the Obergefell decision, which was broadcast and forecast for a long time. I mean, you could see Justice Kennedy's jurisprudence moving in that general direction for years. And so nothing about it was surprising. Whereas the Roe decision, 
really, you know, was a lightning bolt. Now, you might say, well, that there were p- opinions like the Griswold opinion dealing with contraception, but contraception's a different thing from abortion. And, and so that lightning bolt hit American politics, and it's never really been the same since. But considering that we are talking about competing rights, essentially, I'm, I'm guessing, and, or you tell me, if in a completely different scenario, and maybe this um, hypothetical doesn't make any sense, but in a different scenario where Congress had litigated um, abortion, made it law of the land, and then in, I don't know, Doe v. Swade, the Supreme Court decided that this is categorically unconstitutional to legalize abortion in any form. Would that be, would you have been comfortable with that? Because that would be the same sort of eliminating the democratic element from the debate, right? But since those are heightened rights that for you are, you know, life and death. Right. Well, the the constitutional argument, so I just don't, I don't think there is a, a the, the idea that the constitution bans abortion, I think is a, a very significant stretch. And so you would, uh, should the state ban abortion uh, with limited exceptions? That I, I yes, I I believe that's what the democratic process should yield. But does the Constitution of the United States ban abortion? Oh, that's a big stretch. And so I think that one of the problems when you have um, one of the things that leads to institutional distrust mm. is when institutions act in ways that to significant portions of the country are transparently out of bounds, too far, um, take on too much power. And Roe, um, and, and, you know, no less a person than Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg made this argument in, ni- in 1992, by the way. So she right, gave right. the Madison lecture in New York University, and she said, hey, look, if Roe was less breathtaking in scope we wouldn't be where we are today because her view was that the court needs to make changes. The phrase, the word cheese was interstitially, in other words, incrementally. And that if it pushes too far, it pushes outside sort of the, the, the bounds that the American people expect and for, you know, its highest court. And so, you know, again, the lightning, sort of that lightning. So you think that militarized, militarized the response against it? Oh, it radically, you know, there is a very good chance that by 1980-82, you would generally have a, an, a, a set of rules regarding abortion in the United States that would be relatively stable. There'd be some movement here and there at the state level, but you would have it relatively stable. But what the court did is it said, nope, it's not your call, American people, and just took it out took it out of the process. And I, I wonder, I want to jump to the, um, to our current situation. And there, um, a case that I, I asked you, um, about like a couple of days ago, I think, but the, and I'm not going to pronounce the name of it, but there's a, uh, semi reform Jewish congregation that is, is trying to appeal in Florida against the, um, up against its current abortion ban. Their legal claim is that, Jewish tradition doesn't necessarily recognize the life of the unborn, but it does recognize the the duty of preserving life, which in this case would be the mother's. So under certain circumstances, if the state prevents a Jewish mother from terminating the abortion, it could be seen as 
an in, an infringement on her religious freedom. And I asked you if you think there's any validity to the case. I think you've largely dismissed it as theater, right? And something yeah. that doesn't, it's not going to stand, especially if the Supreme Court is going to end up um, recognizing the, the right of the unborn, and therefore this is an established right, then you can't claim uh, religious liberty against uh, an established right to life. Right. I hope that was a fair recap. Yeah, uh, yeah. But what, what I'm wondering is, um, and I, I wonder, did you read the, the Josh uh, Blackman uh, response to this on uh, Volokh uh, conspiracy? I did not. Uh-uh. So I'm, I'm not going to push you on that. But I, I was wondering when you gave your answer, because the bottom line of the disagreement is essentially where life begins, right? It is this metaphysical um, problem that you have disagreement between religions about what constitutes a full-fledged human. And in Judaism, it's not at all clear that life begins at conception or even prenatally. So isn't there some issue there on establishment clause grounds or, you know, whatever legalistic context to have the state assert definitively that life begins at conception or early, earlier than Jewish custom would agree? Is that not the state putting its thumb on the scale, holding preferentially one religious worldview over another in what's at its heart an unknowable religious dispute no (laughs) unless you did something like this um in the state of florida because the bible teaches that life begins at conception abortion is banned okay Mm. so that's an establishment clause problem because you're locating the state's position specifically in a religious principle and enforcing explicitly enforcing a religious principle. But the way our establishment clause works is if I'm articulate, there's no such thing as a state government without a viewpoint, mm-hmm. right? There is no such thing. And so um, if you're going to say that, well, if I'm if one of the sources of the state's viewpoint is religious people voting their religious conscience, therefore it violates the Establishment Clause, everything violates the Establishment Clause. This is one of the most religious nations on the planet, and 81% believe in God. Virtually every single citizen who believes in God says that their belief in God influences their political view. So... If you're going to say, well, there are religious people who believe this for religious reasons, therefore it violates the Establishment Clause, there's just no position the state could take. Mm. It's a great great answer. (laughs) So you answered earlier about um, RBG being a a proponent of incrementalism uh, in terms of Supreme Court legislation adapting or or fitting into the cultural moment and zeitgeist. I believe that your position as well is, is, is that of an incrementalist when it comes to your position as a pro-life advocate and you kind of have a long-term goal that involves not just the legal system but culture. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I come from a, a very liberal bent. Most of the people who are listening who know me are going to also be of a liberal bent. And so I would love to hear from you wh- how you think about the incremental progress towards more, a more pro-life America? Well, there's just been tremendous verifiable uh, progress towards a more pro-life America. The The abortion rate in the United States is less than half of what it once was. Um, the percentage of people who take an un, carry an unwanted pregnancy to term has increased. Um, 
And, and so abortion is just so much less prevalent than it used to be. Now, interestingly enough, there is exactly one president under whom the abortion rate increased since Jimmy Carter. Only one. Do you all know who that is? It's Donald Trump. It's Donald Trump. There is a slight uptick in the abortion rate over the last four years. I wonder if that was liberal ladies just saying it's all... <laughs> Why bring a child into this world, unfortunately? I, I also, you know, I have other interpretations. One of the things is I think that, uh, um, you know, the right is incle- increasingly post-religious in many ways um, and more libertine uh, than it used to be. And I think libertinism is ultimately inconsistent with the pro-life ethic. Oh, that's interesting. You think the rise is coming from the right to some extent? Well, some of the states where there were big increases were red states. So, you know, Mississippi, for example, had a big percentage increase. Um, it's interesting. A number of red states had increases. So, so, you, so you think in some way, I mean, to overinterpret what you just said, the having such a libertine, um, selfish, repugnant, and unreligious character as Trump being the champion of the right created a permission structure for people to change their views? Let me put it like this. Cultural wrecking balls wreck cultures. <laughs> and so I think Trump is a cultural wrecking ball on multiple fronts. I mean, he's in, and there is ev- virtually every single measure of social and civic and, and physical health got worse under Trump, and even putting aside the pandemic. So you had higher murder rates, you had higher suicide, you had higher drug overdoses, you had more abortions. What you saw was, I think, a, a society in a state of increasing existential crisis and despair. And it doesn't surprise me at all that you would see increased abortion in that circumstance. Can you explain your distinction between abolition and abolitionists? Yeah. Oh, sure. So there's been this, uh, you know, on the pro-life side, there has been a rising wave of people who call themselves abolition, abortion abolitionists. And and they're kind of appropriating the name. I hate that they've appropriated the name abolitionist, but essentially their view is something like this. Um, abortion is murder treated as such. Okay, so that would mean um, you're going to prosecute women uh, who have abortions. That would mean that uh, there will not be exceptions for abortions, uh, definitely not for health, um, and not even including for the life of the mother, and um, and that there should be no incrementalism. So, for example, if you are a pro-life legislator and the best compromise you can get is a 15-week abortion ban, you have to vote no because there's no circumstance under which you can cast a vote for anything other than abortion abolition. And I'm so it's glad kind of that these fringe... tendencies are uh, the, the left is free of these tendencies right now. <laughs> yeah, happens all the time, right and left. But so this is a rise uh, on sort of the reactionary slash populist right, and it's utterly contradictory to the traditions of the mainstream of the pro life movement, which has always had a view of you're not going to prosecute mothers, you're going to take any advan- pro life advance that you can get. If it's a 15-week ban or a 20-week ban or uh, ultrasounds or you name it, you're going to take it and um, you're going to allow for exceptions for the life and health of the mother, physical health. And because the ultimate, the goal of the pro-life movement is this, the 
love and protection of life, not the punishment of women. And uh, so that is a, that's a brewing civil war right now in the pro-life movement. And I've always been on the traditionalist side. Now, I've also supported passing laws that take direct aim at Roe because I, my view was you're never going to strike down Roe unless you challenge Roe. <laughs> um, but I've always been more than happy to take an incrementalist victory and the abolitionists say, well, that's, you're still accepting some abortions. So that's, that that's not truly pro-life. And I believe you've written that it, we're never going to get to the point where you completely eradicate abortion without a cultural change, right? This cannot yes. be located only in courts of law. And obviously when abortion was illegal, people still got abortions illegally. So, or sorry, did I say that right? Was it? Yes. They still, yeah. When abortion, yeah. Uh, right. So people still got them illegally. So there has to be a culture in which I guess a abortion is, considered immoral and be or stigmatized there's social pressure against it and also that there are, i would assume and this is what i would really like you to talk about is like that there is a lot of support uh around that around having children even when they're unwanted initially and there's a capacity to raise them right and and this is the part that i get uh, i just don't understand why everyone's not on board on that like route because even if you're pro or anti-abortion, everyone should agree that it should be easier to support children. Right, right, right. Well, you, let's first the, deal the, with those the legality. financial concerns are, are are taken out of the equation, right? That the or the financial yeah. or social support concerns are taken out of the equation as much as possible, right? Um, so I would say first on the legal point, you're never going to pass a law and end abortion. Okay, and notice I said you, you can pass a law that, that could ban abortion, but you're never going to pass a law that will end abortion um, because it's quite simply, it's, it's e easy to obtain an abortion relative to, you know, it's, it's not tremendously difficult. How do we know that you can't pass a law and end abortion? Because when more abortion was mostly illegal, when Roe was decided in 1973, it was more common than it is now. In other words, a higher abortion rate when abortion was mostly illegal. So therefore, if you want to end abortion, which should be the priority of a pro-life movement, it's not like you pass a law and you go, my work here is done. Because you're trying to build a culture of life and save lives uh, and give people meaningful, joyful lives you're going to have to go with cultural change and cultural change is going to have to include all kinds of things like here's a big one that there's where we've made a lot of progress, destigmatizing unwed parenting, um, economic change, you know, like the Romney child allowance program where, you know, it starts prenatally, prenatally parents get money to help prepare for the birth of a child. And then they get a monthly allotment after the child is born. And all of these things are, because we know for a fact that financial pressure is a key reason for a lot of abortions, if you're pro-life, easing that financial pressure should be every bit as much of a priority as trying to pass a ban and being done with it, right? Because um, you're not going to be done with it. You can pass a ban all day long and you're not going to be done with it. It goes to the point that a lot of the political fights that we're having today are about power politics and not actually the results. If you actually care about abortion yeah. or the yeah. lives of unborn children. And also why, you know, criminalizing the mothers is a really bad PR 
play if you're thinking long-term <laughs> cultural shifts, right? right. Like that's yeah. not going to help you at the long-term goal. Okay. So, so, so to, to close on something lighter. Oh, wait, no, oh ask, yes. Sorry. Ask one more question on this because we're going to have someone on the show after you, David, who's a uh, very pro-choice advocate for pro-choice. Uh, and I plan on asking her how she talks to um, <laughs> pro-life people and essentially uh, attempts to incept uh, and get them to think potentially in along more pro-choice veins. Uh, and so I would like to ask the same question of you, since to be fair, um, when you talk to pro-choice people, what's your best argument or or tactics for getting them to think along more pro-life veins? Yeah, well, I, get, I always begin with questions because... I want to know where somebody's coming from and why they come why they're coming from this perspective. And so sometimes somebody can come from this perspective, a pro-choice perspective, and they just don't even know basic realities of fetal development, right? That, you know, and you can talk to them about, you know, from the moment of conception, how an unborn baby has a is a distinctly different human being. It's a different DNA from the mother and the father. And you can talk about, you know, things like there's, um, you know, you can detect heartbeats at X age and you would be sh surprised how many people just don't even know any of this stuff, which is one reason why I'm very strongly against criminalization because criminal uh, of women, because criminalization of women implies a, a intent that there is an intent element that often just doesn't exist at all. Um, and, but so why, you know, one of the questions is why? And so when I find out why someone is pro-choice, I dive right into what's the reason why. And, and we'll talk about that. So a lot of it depends um, a great deal on, you know, what's their understanding? Is it because they, you know, there's a belief that having a baby can truly inhibit career prospects? Or is it because, there's a sense that the baby, they have a sense of the baby that's just at odds with what bio, bio, you know, biological reality is. Or sometimes they haven't, you know, there's so many different ways in which and reasons why people are pro-choice. And then the other thing is when you're genuinely curious about someone's view, they understand that they're respected. Whereas, whereas if you walk in and you're just like, I'm pro-life, I'm going to tell you why I'm pro-life and why you're wrong, they don't feel respected at all. Because in many ways, they're kind of not because you're, you're just walking in and saying, let me vomit my truth upon you. Let me educate you. Let me educate you. And that's just not the way it works. And so I'm, I try to lead with curiosity and, and then address what is, once I find out what the reason is for the perspective, and sometimes it can be something that is, you know, really honestly, there. I'm, you know, I'm just going to sort of say, I'm just going to kind of back off a little bit and just say, I'm so sorry. Like a person who's talked about being subject to a horrific sexual assault or something like that, you know, some of that, you know, when you walk into it, I don't feel like I need to persuade somebody every single conversation that I have. Mm. Um, and so, you know, sometimes I can just kind of sit with a person and hear them out. And even in just hearing them out, what have I done? I've I've humanized the pro life perspective a bit. Um, so to 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 start wrapping on a on a lighter note, um, guns. No. Oh, great. Okay. Um, 
you've drawn a distinction that I, I, I I'm so glad to hear coming from somebody who is a, a bona fide conservative, uh, probably pronounced bona fide, by the way, to your previous question, David. Um, <laughs> distinguishing between pro, being pro-guns and being pro-gun culture. And mm-hmm. that's something that, again, my foreignness plays a big role here. American gun culture is, you know, to be as generous as possible, shocking for to an yeah. outsider. And this is an outsider coming from a, a highly militarized society. Mike Huckabee would talk about how Israel is a great example for, you know, gun rights. And it's like, it's no, no, <laughs> absolutely not. We do not condone what's going on in the U.S., if anything, the military background makes Israelis take guns so much more seriously than they're regarded in the American political context. You need guns to defend yourself. We're pro-guns in that sense. But you do not take pictures of yourself and your kids holding killing machines and send it as a Christmas card. Right. That's farcical, callow, and grotesque. You know, Israeli military has this thing called the purity of arms, which is the protocol establishing the highest standard of responsibility in handling your own weapons, your guns specifically. And it's so exacting that if you act irresponsibly with your gun, even just leave it laying unattended for a second you're going to be punished in the highest order, let alone if you play childish games with it. So this, to me, is an indication of what a healthy gun culture looks like, where you understand that weapons are important, your life depends on them, and because they're so important, you have to treat them as the deadly things that they are. If you're going to act like they're just infantile toys... Or even worse, like the the Republican who had recently this ad about uh, hunting permits. Rhino hunting, yes. Yeah, Eric Greitens, yeah. Which, to be clear, is referring to not rhinoceroses, but Republicans in name only. Which means hunting permits for political enemies. Maybe if that's how you treat your guns, maybe you're not mature enough to deserve the Second Amendment. Your take yeah, so <laughs> there's if you want to know why there's so many pictures of you know Christmas cards with guns and people flaunting guns, a lot of that's rooted in this new negative polarization of where you are actually trying to trigger a negative reaction in your political opponents. So this is the own the libs, the trigger the libs, drink the liberal tears. And there's few things that own the libs or trigger the libs or make you, Drink, allow you to drink liberal tears more than like ostentatious displays of weaponry. And so this is why a lot of these Republican politicians do it. They want to, it's not just a cultural signifier, like I'm one of you, look at my guns, but it's also part of this, uh, the left hates me and I want to make them hate me because the more the left hates me, the more you're going to like me. And there's that dynamic. And so when, when politics stops being about persuasion and becomes about mobilization, this is what you get. So if you're in a heavily gerrymandered district, you don't have to worry about persuading anybody that, um, you don't have to worry about persuading a fence sitter to win your race. You just have to make sure your people come out. 
there's all kinds of incentives to trigger the left or to make trigger the right on the other side. And so that's what uh, a lot of this is. It's just triggering people. But now, there is something deeper, right? What you call, and by the way, you, you have un, unwittingly plagiarized me with this title because I was actually working at the same time on an article for Unheard <laughs> with the same title. And then I just scrapped, ah, can't beat David French, uh, about the uh, gun idolatry. Yeah, so also what's ending up happening is so you have, you don't just have the trigger the libs thing going on. You just have, you have a glorification of the gun as a cultural marker. And also the glorification of the gun is an instrument of defiance that essentially is saying to your political opponents that you can't govern me. Um, I will fight you. And it's deeply and inherently destabilizing. And so it's this, you know, it's, it's uh, kind of, again, we, I talked earlier about what comes first, the chicken or the egg. Here's another what comes first, the chicken or the egg. Is the, am I loving the gun because it tri triggers the libs or do I love the gun and then use it to trigger the libs? There's a, there's a cycle here in which the very creation of something as a political totem creates a reverence for the totem. <laughs> and so because the gun has become such a central part of American political discourse, then the side that is supporting gun rights is likely to place an outsized emphasis on it. And then you add to that this incredible polarization we have where, you know, there are people, you know, as one Republican politician told Politico, he's constantly talking to people who are talking about civil war. And there's this, um, there's a, 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 an emerging American subculture that says, I'm, we're prepping for the big one. We're prepping for when things touch off and, this is where you're seeing the people open carrying protests. This is where, you know, you see um, people own six, seven, eight AR-15s. You know, this is, you know, part of a culture. So few? So Yeah, right. If you've got more than eight, you got a lot of money. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so there, there's a sort of a reverence for the gun in uh, across a full spectrum, not just for not just for the fact that it provides a means of self-defense and a regrettably violent culture, but that it is a symbol of your tribal identity. And, right. and when it becomes that symbol, that's when it's elevating way beyond its proper place in our society. Right. It's, it becomes the golden calf. But the, yeah. the question, I mean, we know that any kind of serious um, gun regulation that, that is going to limit the purchase of guns or even change the economics of it is not only unlikely to pass, but also just completely unfeasible in implementation. But I, I do wonder, it, would you be surprised, uh, you're obviously very strong on the Second Amendment as well, would, would you have tolerated something that would be, let's call it um, gun iconoclasm, trying to, to, to denude it of its, its sexy appeal, uh, legislate the design of guns to make them completely unappealing, <laughs> Make them pink, stick a dildo on their site, <laughs> eliminate this mix of spiritual <laughs> and, and faux masculine exaltation that people derive from guns, but retain all the utility, whether uh, self-defense or hunting. Uh, I know this is total fantasy land. This, there's no 
There's no yeah. world in which this is happening. But just just to play along, would you have supported <laughs> that in this theoretical world as a way to diminish some of the some of the more rotten aspects of gun culture without necessarily undermining the Second Amendment? Are you incremental in your approach yeah. to gun legislation? <laughs> I no. Would I support mandatory pink guns? <laughs> no, no. That that's no. Huh? First thing I do when I bought a pink gun is I'd paint it black. Um. So, yeah. So, uh, <laughs> uh, do you wanted a final question? If you have time for one final question, David, I'd be curious to know if any of your friendships have been tested with due to these any politically recent political fissures, and if so, how you two navigated that dynamic and exerted hopefully exerted the friendship over that division hopefully or if not how it dissolved yeah so i i've not lost any close friendships over political division um there are people who are no longer friends because of politics but not because of me so in other words i early on in this process i i made a resolution i'm not gonna i'm not going to end a friendship because i disagree with someone politically um i'm just not going to do it now, if somebody wants to end a friendship with me, there's nothing I can do about that. So there are people who have, you know, rejected, blocked, screened. Now, I have ended friendships with people not because of politics, but because of cruelty. So if someone is affirmatively cruel to me or my family, regardless of the reason, it could be because they love Donald Trump or it could be because they're an Alabama football fan. I mean, it doesn't matter if they're cruel to me or cruel to my family, we're not going to be friends. And there have been people that I've had to uh, distance myself from because of their cruelty. And that I put that in a different category from politics because there's nothing inherent in a political disagreement that requires cruelty, nothing at all. Some of my best friends in the world were, were and are Profound, very progressive people. And we disagreed about politics from the inception of the friendship. And yet I would trust them with my life. And so I have not ever, I've not ended a, a friendship because of politics. I have ended relationships because of cruelty. Can you expand what you mean by cruelty? Personal vicious insults, public attacks against my wife, mm. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. And that's something that you encountered from people you considered friends. Yes. Somebody who, for example, when I walk into, after I came out against Roy Moore, I walked into uh, my son's basketball game at a Christian school and they stood and they turned their backs to us. Um, and that was a friend, somebody I went to church with. Um, and so I'm not going to be friends with somebody who turns their back to me. Now I'll forgive them if they ask for forgiveness, but I'm not going to trip over myself to say, hey there, John, we're still friends, right? <laughs> you know, I mean, to me, if you're, if you're standing and publicly turning your back to me, that's a pretty ridiculous behavior. I have, I, I have a friend like that that uh, dumped me for my uh, <laughs> political <laughs> views, I think. And, I, and the funny thing is, that was also a friendship that developed over our ability to, to argue politics, but I think the, um, the George Floyd moment made disagreement impossible for her, at least. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. David, for conclusion, I'm pretty sure we asked you this uh, kicker question last time, but I, I'd love to hear um, if things have changed or if I'm forgetting and we didn't ask you. 
What do you consider the biggest blind spots on the left and the right right now? Oh man, that's a really good, that's a really good question. And I, so I'm going to sort of say, I think they both share a similar blind spot and that is the impossibility of obtaining and maintaining dominant, the dominant political and cultural position in the United States. And so if you are laboring under the misperception that you can, in fact, defeat your opponents and end their, their influence on American life, that's going to sort of dictate one way of interacting with the world. And then if you understand that you cannot and that you're going to have to figure out a way to live with these folks, then that's another way of interacting with the world. And too many people in the post-liberal right and the post-liberal left seem to believe that they can just go ahead and sweep away their enemies. And if, it, if they have enough will, if they have enough power, they can do it. And that's a tremendous misconception. And it's one that I think has a lot of ripple effects in our politics. David, I say it many times to people, and I think I've even told you this once or wrote it to you, but I, you, you, I, I wish you were the soul of the nation. I think yeah. you are the soul of the nation. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And, soul. Yeah, the beleaguered soul. And I'm, I'm deeply grateful for your time. And, um, you know, yeah, good luck. Go win that pickleball game. Yeah. Oh, I intend to. I intend to. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Thanks for hosting me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Uncertain Things. We are at uncertain.substack.com where you can find some of our writings as well. If you want to support us, share us with your friends and enemies and like us wherever you can. David has indeed won his pickleball game. So all rejoice. Till next time, stay sane.